Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm your host today, Aaron Schlein from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Sacramento District. Today's episode of Inside the Castle is part of a series focused on career development within the Army Corps of Engineers. The goal for this series is simple share proven skills and strategies to help our USACE teammates move their careers and the nation forward. So it's often our leaders and our seasoned experts who we turn to for advice and guiding words of wisdom to help us navigate our careers. But now more than ever, I believe it's essential that we take the time to listen to employees in the earlier stages of their careers to recognize their insights and to understand their concerns, their goals, and their perceptions of how they can contribute to the Corps' mission today and into the future. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from one of those early career employees. You're going to hear my interview with Lindsay Floyd, a planner at a Sacramento district who's been with the Corps for about two and a half years. Lindsay spoke about her experience of being recruited as a new graduate, about the overwhelm of the onboarding process, and the ups and downs of finding training that matters most when you're just starting out. Lindsay also shared a very recent story about how seeking new ways to contribute and raising your hand can lead to once-in-a-lifetime professional opportunities, even for employees in the early stages of their careers. We're also going to talk about Lindsay's perceptions about the potential for a long-term career with the Corps and what the leaders of today can do to recruit and retain the leaders of tomorrow. Before we dive into the interview, I want to let you know that this is the first episode in the career development series featuring an interview with an early career employee, but it will not be the last. If you know someone who's in the first few years of their USACE career and has valuable insights that we can all learn from, or maybe you are that person in the first few years of your USACE career and you have valuable insights that we can learn from, either way, please take a quick moment to reach out so we can connect and share those stories and insights with our Inside the Castle listeners. The easiest way to get in touch is to simply click my email address in the episode description in your podcast player. If you have no idea what an episode description is or where to find it, or maybe you just prefer to write this down, now's the time. Grab a pen and paper. My email address is aaron.p.schlein at usace.army.mil. That's A-A-R-O-N dot P dot S-C-H-L-E-I-N at U-S-A-C-E dot army dot mil. And now it's time to roll on with those early career insights. Here's my interview with Lindsay Floyd. Enjoy. Shortly after completing her undergraduate degree in environmental science and management at UC Davis in 2019, Lindsay Floyd has served as both a support and a lead planner on a number of studies and Silver Jackets projects, including flood risk management and tribal ecosystem restoration studies and an ongoing watershed assessment in American Samoa. In her free time, Lindsay enjoys hiking and backpacking. Lindsay Floyd, welcome to Inside the Castle. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Lindsay, you recently had what I believe to be an extraordinary opportunity to travel for your job across thousands of miles, across most of the Pacific Ocean, dozens of time zones, and even the international dateline. First, tell us the places that you went, and then I want to back up and talk about how you got to be involved in such a unique trip. 
Yeah, it was a really great opportunity. So I work in the Sacramento district. And from there, I traveled to Honolulu as kind of a home base before taking a military flight to American Samoa. And then to get home, we had to go through Guam and then back to Honolulu and then finally back in Sacramento. So traveled to Hawaii and American Samoa and Guam. It's a whirlwind trip. So taking us back a little bit to the beginning, how did this trip come to be? What was the purpose of the trip and how did, how did you get involved? There's the Tafuna Flood Risk Management Study that's going on out of POH. Army jargon alert. Army jargon alert. Army jargon alert. I'd like to introduce you to a brand new feature here on Inside the Castle. You just heard it for the very first time. It's the Army jargon alert. Anytime my guest or myself drops some army jargon that maybe not everyone's going to be familiar with, I'm going to drop in with that army jargon alert. Army jargon alert! And explain to you exactly what you just heard. In this instance, you heard Lindsay use the letters P O H. The Corps of Engineers uses shorthand to refer to its divisions and its districts, and POH refers to the Pacific Ocean Division, Honolulu District. There's the Tafuna Flood Risk Management Study that's going on out of POH, looking at flood risk management in the Tafuna Plain, which is part of American Samoa. And the team hasn't been able to get out there since pre-COVID and the team needed to go and kind of ground truth some of their data to move forward with the recommended plan and meet the agency decision milestone. So there was incentive to get out there and I'm not on the team technically. There's a parallel study going on also out of POH that is the American Samoa Post-Disaster Watershed Assessment. I'm the lead planner on that study and there was an open space for the team that was going out to American Samoa for me to join actually as the economist. So I was helping out with the structure inventory assessment, but I was kind of going for personal reasons to like meet the the partners that we'd been working with on the watershed assessment and see the place for myself to try to get a more rich understanding to integrate into the watershed assessment. But I was there doing the structure inventory assessment for the econ team. So if I'm hearing this right, you you raised your hand essentially to do something that's outside of your normal purview of your job, a structure inventory for the economic side of the analysis. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I am not an economist by trade. I've touched on the economist work just as a planner and we kind of have a pulse on all the different pieces that go into the team, but I hadn't worked on anything like that before. Well, that's a recurring theme here on Inside the Castle is the cool things that can happen in your career when you raise your hand to do things, even things that may be uncomfortable or completely outside of your job description, cool things can happen. And I think this is a great example of that. So how did it go? So you're on the ground, you're doing an economist's work and you're not an economist, you're thousands of miles from home. How did it go? It was awesome. Like it was, it was a really good experience. And we've heard from the team that we got all the data that we needed. It was a really pivotal moment for the team. So in that respect, just like purely professional, it was, it was a successful mission. We got everything that we set out to do, but personally, it was a really great trip and we made really strong connections with some of the representatives. 
In addition to the work stuff that we were doing, it also was a very fulfilling trip getting to build connections with some of the village chiefs. And we had dinners with these chiefs. And in our free time, we like to drive around the island. So we spent an afternoon going to the National Park of American Samoa. Um, We spent other afternoons going to beaches and snorkeling. So it was a really great trip, both professionally and personally. Were there any challenges or or fears that you had going into the trip, concerns about traveling so far during the the COVID-19 pandemic? Any any concerns that you'd like to share? Yeah, definitely. So it was kind of an interesting situation how we even got out there. COVID is just hitting American Samoa for the first time. So there was kind of a COVID relief mission going out there. And we hopped on that plane to try to, you know, get out there because there's no commercial flights currently going to or from American Samoa. And actually the day we left, they closed all air and sea travel to and from American Samoa. So we really got out in time. But there was that fear like, okay, is this a good idea with the pandemic? But we took a lot of precautions and practiced social distancing, wore and then masks whenever we were indoors with people. So I felt really safe from that perspective. But there was kind of an underlying travel fear because we were relying on military planes to get us to and from. And there's always a little bit of flexibility with those schedules. And we didn't have a solid return date planned. So it was a little unnerving, like, okay, when are we going to get home? Um, But we had a really great team working out of Honolulu district that was very reassuring saying, okay, we have a plane coming. There might be like plus or minus a day of when it actually arrives but we will get you home. There were moments where we were like, what is happening? You know, we had to go through three days of quarantine and we weren't getting a lot of information on the ground of what was happening. And at one point they took our passports and it turned out they just took them to go get them stamped at customs. But there wasn't a lot of communication. So we definitely had our moments as a team where, you know, we were all scratching our heads and feeling a little nervous. But everyone that went on that trip were totally professional. They were great to work with. No big hiccups along the way from anyone. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And and thanks for, for highlighting that experience. Because to me, like I said, great things happen when you raise your hand and you're relatively new. You're relatively early in your in your core career. You're just in your, your third year now. And to, in such a relatively short time, make enough of a name for yourself to be chosen for that trip. Because to, to be clear, just because you raise your hand for something doesn't mean you're going to get selected. Obviously, you have to have a team behind you that has faith that you're going to get the job done. And you definitely, definitely had that. I want to back up again. Like I said, you're in your, just your third year of your core career. And I want to talk about some of your insights from the beginning. Tell me about what, what were some of your expectations of working for the core when you started and how have those expectations changed over time? Truthfully, I didn't know that much about the core. I am from Sacramento, California originally. So I always kind of knew the core was involved in the levy systems around here, but that was really the only context I knew about them. But I actually have a cousin who works at the Sacramento district. And, you know, I kind of learned a little bit more about the core's mission. And I knew that she liked her work. And I had a professor that I work pretty closely with at UC Davis, and he worked with the HEC Center. Army jargon The acronym HEC refers to the Hydrologic Engineering Center. HEC is located in Davis, California, and its mission is to support the nation in its water resources management responsibilities by increasing the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' technical capability in hydraulic engineering and water resources planning and management. 
had a professor that I work pretty closely with at UC Davis. Um, and he worked with the HEC Center out of Davis. And he was kind of always saying, hey, maybe you should you know, look into the core. So then fast forward, I'm at a career fair at UC Davis. And I met Sarah Ross Arizet, who's the section planning chief with the Sacramento district. And um, she was a really great advocate for me. And she later reached out and encouraged me to apply and help me get a foot in the door to get an interview. But, you know, going in, I didn't really know what the core was about or what the expectations of the job were. But, you know, as I've kind of grown in the position of a planner and seen all the different mission areas that the core has and all the different places that we have work in, it's really far exceeded my expectations of just, okay, they work on the levees in Sacramento. It's really such a great organization with a lot of diverse projects out there. Yeah, that's not an uncommon story, really. And I can say the same thing. When I came to the Corps of Engineers, I knew practically nothing about what they did. I wasn't even sure, like, how closely tied it is to the military. It's got army in the name. I'm like, am I going to have to cut my hair short and shave every day? I, I really had no idea what to expect. And I, I love it when people can share those sort of honest insights about their experience as well. Now, I'm a first line supervisor, so this is partially a selfish question, but I think folks out there can can gain a lot of insights from this as well. When you come on as a new employee, your, your supervisor plays a pivotal role in your development and bringing you on board and making you feel comfortable and equipped to do your job. So what were your expectations of your first line supervisor when you started? And also, how have those expectations changed over time? So this is like my first professional job. I worked in college and a little bit in high school, but, you know, I kind of, I didn't know what to expect from a supervisor in a more typical nine to five job. I thought it would be, you know, someone that's making sure you're on task and showing up to work and making sure you're meeting deadlines. But over time, that expectation has really been far exceeded. And I didn't realize what a close relationship you would have with your supervisor. And I feel like I've been really lucky since starting with the core that I've had really exceptional supervisors. My first supervisor, Rhiannon Kucharski, who's now with POH, she hired me right out of college and was very patient and receptive to answering all the questions I had as I kind of navigated starting my first job and entering the federal system. At times it felt like I, you know, the fire hose was just open and you're being blasted with information, but having a, a supportive supervisor really made that transition easier. And now I work with Erin Maloney, um, and she's been a great kind of unofficial mentor. You know, she'll sit down and take time to explain things as mundane as, you know, hey, I don't I don't understand what this timesheet issue is. What's going on there to like more involved planning concepts. And it's really a, a close working dynamic. It's a lot more hands on than I expected a supervisor to be in the best way possible. Um, you know, if, if there's a deadline that needs to be met and you need extra support, um, Aaron and the other supervisors are more than willing to jump in and help and, and take some of that stress off your plate. So definitely the expectations have been far exceeded over time from just kind of someone managing and watching and making sure you're on task to someone that I talk to pretty regularly. So drawing from those experiences, what advice would you have for a first line supervisor onboarding a recent grad or someone who's very early in their professional career? What advice would you have for people like me? Yeah. So it is a lot of information all at once. And I felt like for months, I was just kind of stumbling around and like trying to figure out my way. And, you know, there's not really one repository where all this information is kept. Like, how do you do a timesheet? How do you request leave? And I kind of gave that feedback and 
we recently onboarded a couple new folks and we kind of had a buddy system. Um, so I was helping onboard one person and kind of being their support system where they could call me or email or message over teams and just having someone that, you know, you can ask any question to as mundane as, you know, as you need it to be. Um, because I think supervisors are juggling a lot and they have a lot of staff to look after in addition to projects. And they're not always readily available to answer your every question. And personally, I felt a little intimidated reaching out to my supervisor, not because they made themselves inaccessible, but, you know, just kind of, I didn't want to bother them. So having someone staff level, that's like more of a peer rather than a supervisor helping to onboard, has been a really great experience. And I had that unofficially when I first started and that helped me tremendously. So I think implementing this moving forward, like having somebody that a new staff member can turn to is is very beneficial. So piecing together your timeline for someone who may be listening to this years and years in the future as Inside the Castle will continue to live on. We're sitting here in March of 2022. As we said, Lindsay, you're in your third year of your core career. So doing a little quick math there, We know that you spent the bulk of your career under maximum telework during the COVID-19 pandemic, and you only spent a very short time at the very, very beginning actually in office with people. So how how has that virtual experience affected things like mentorship, being mentored and being brought up to speed on, on expectations and new projects and new opportunities? Yeah. So I was only ever in the office for six months or so. So it was pretty short, but I I had a good relationship with a lot of my teams moving into this full work from home mode. So the transition wasn't too bad. And maybe it was a little bit easier because I didn't have this office culture ingrained in me, you know, it's still fairly new going to the office every single day. Um, So moving completely virtual, um, while the world felt really chaotic, maybe that wasn't the hardest transition for me personally. I feel like a lot of my teammates are really great at responding over Teams. And previously we had Skype and it was really helpful to be able to message just really quickly or call somebody and have those conversations. But definitely starting new teams like the the watershed assessment one that I'm on, everybody's completely virtual. I think there's a handful of people out of the Sacramento district, but really we have people on the East Coast. We have people in Honolulu district. We have people in San Francisco. We had a teammate in Alaska. So really it was a virtual team to begin with. And having that experience doing fully remote work really helped be able to integrate and establish these teams that, you know, moving forward, this might be what it looks like having everyone from different places. Any lessons learned from that experience as far as the team building goes? Can you just dig in a little deeper to how that team developed and and grew to work together? Yeah, I think it's really important to establish personal relationships, getting to know each other on like a person to person basis and not just, you know, let's get this mission done. We're just teammates. I like to take a few minutes when I have one-on-one calls with people and try to relate to them and and hear what's going on in their personal lives um, and connect on them on like a deeper level so that every interaction isn't just transactional. And I think that's really important for establishing teams is having some sort of baseline understanding of each other and development of a little bit of a friendship 
friendship or some sort of relationship, it just makes it so much easier in this virtual environment. For the teams that I was already on when we transitioned to telework was mostly with Sacramento folks that I'd had um, a rapport with and, you know, we had relationships from being in the office. So trying to carry over that same sentiment of, you know, I sat two feet away from you at one point, but how do you do that when it's somebody you've never met that lives in a different part of the country? And I really think just taking a minute to get to know them on a more personal level will go a long ways. I want to shift the conversation a little bit to some of the the formal processes that we have in the core for for training people, bringing them up to speed. I'd like to get your perspective on programs or trainings that you were exposed to in the last two and a half, three years that you found particularly useful or just as importantly, not so useful. By personal opinion, I think I was overexposed to training early on and there was a lot of stuff I just wasn't prepared to absorb or really do anything with. I'm curious about your experience. I feel like when I first started, again, it was like drinking from the fire hose. There was a lot of information. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about the prospect courses. I've taken really great ones. Like I think the Planning Essential series has been awesome and it's been really great to help develop myself as a planner. But conversely, I think with going virtual, there's a little bit of a disconnect. And I took one where it was on East Coast time, but you know, I'm sitting in Sacramento, California. So there was a three hour time difference and I had to be on at, you know, 6 a.m., which normally I'm not really that much of a morning person. So maybe that training wasn't the most useful because it was just the time difference was a little bit challenging to to get over. But another program I've I've been really enjoying is the PCOP, the Planning Community of Practice series. They do a biweekly webinar and it's just an hour. And I really appreciate that program because it's always really timely topics that they're going over. And, you know, you don't have to take a full week out of your schedule to just dedicate to training. It's nice to be able to pop in for an hour and get some information and then, you know, you can process it and integrate it. And another one that I've been enjoying is the Bridging the Equity Gap series, which is put on by the San Francisco District and kind of talking about how our flood risk management efforts can better serve all communities. Those have been some trainings that I like, but definitely it helps to take trainings when you need them rather than when it's just written on your IDP. Army jargon The acronym IDP refers to the Individual Development Plan. The IDP is a tool that employees and their supervisors use to determine personal and professional goals. Definitely it helps to take trainings when you need them rather than when it's just written on your IDP. Like, you know, I didn't know that much about environmental compliance, And that would have been really useful to have that training on one of my projects to be able to be the planner and and say, okay, we need this piece at this time, but I didn't even know what pieces we needed. So getting that training when it's more timely rather than years before or years after the fact so that you can take it and run with it in that moment. So how would you describe your level of empowerment, if you will, as far as being your own advocate for which trainings you want to take as opposed to just having them prescribed for you? 
I think we have a lot of autonomy in in that realm, at least in planning in Sacramento District. We have a lot of freedom to put what we want on our IDPs, and we might not get it every year, but our management chain is definitely receptive to what our interests are and what kind of trainings we want to take, as well as you know pushing the ones that are very planner centric, that have a clear relationship to our career path. But there's definitely room for a little bit outside of the box trainings. Like I'm taking a week long GIS training that I was interested in. And my supervisor was a good advocate for getting me in that training. Um, While day to day, I might not use those skills. It's nice to have a supportive management chain that sees that as something that I'm interested in and is willing to, you know, let me go through that training on work time. Great. So let's talk about looking about long-term careers in the core. And I'm drawing from my own experience here. It took me several years I'm 13 years in. It took me probably at least five years to even see a glimmer of a career path to where I say, this is something I want to do. This is a place I want to go. What's your perceived potential for a long-term career in the core? In other words, do you see an appealing career path for yourself? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that the core has so many different paths you can take and the opportunities for details and going on emergency response missions. Like it's a very dynamic job. And long term, I do see a potential career. And I, I know personally, I want to go back to grad school at some point. And there's programs that the core offers that help pay for that. And that's huge. But yeah, I I really am enjoying planning right now. And while I know I want to do a detail at some point in the future, maybe in the environmental realm or doing a PM kind of detail, I'm really enjoying the career path I'm on right now and and seeing what some of the RTSs are doing. Army jargon alert! RTS stands for Regional Technical Specialist. An RTS is an individual who is widely recognized as a go-to expert in a specific field or discipline within a given region. I'm really enjoying the career path I'm on right now and, and seeing what some of the RTSs are doing and the kind of work that they get involved in is definitely exciting. I'm a section chief. I'm a supervisory economist is my official job title. Yet here I am interviewing you for a podcast, something completely out of the realm of what I do for a living. So do you, Lindsay, have a skill or a talent that you would like to have the opportunity to use in your career, but isn't currently in your job description? When I left college, I was getting really into coding and R and using GIS skills. And I don't do any of that in my day-to-day life. And it's definitely kind of a user-lose type of skill. So I would love to have the opportunity to kind of pick those back up and figure out a way to use those. Um, and I know Jesse Morrill Winter is a visionary. And when I first started, he was with the Sacramento District and trying to find ways to start integrating those kinds of tools into our, our day-to-day, like data management and visualization and making graphics, things like that. So I think that would be a really cool opportunity. Let's see, you have coding aspirations. You have now some experience doing economic structure inventory. I may try to pilfer you into my section, Lindsay. (laughs) In wrapping up here, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and asking you to speak for your generation a little bit. What do you think are some ways that the core can improve in recruiting and retaining early career employees? 
I think getting a workforce that looks a little bit more representative of the big U.S. is a great starting point and making it a place that people want to come work for. But I will say I, I probably have one of the best work-life balances out of a lot of my peers that are in similar points in their career. And a lot of that is our management seeing us as you know people first before staff and being flexible with getting time off and you know taking mental health days if we need it. So that's huge. But I will say it's a little bit slow onboarding with the core. Just anecdotally, I had a friend that recently applied to the core. And in the time it took her to hear back that she was accepted for an interview, she'd already interviewed and been offered a job and accepted a job with a different company. So just keeping up with the fast paced nature, I think would be huge to recruit and maintain new talent. You know, it just it just moves a little bit slowly. But I understand that we have more red tape than some of the private industries do. This is going back again, 13 years, but I have my own onboarding story that I laugh about today, but at the time was incredibly frustrating because I was a new college grad. And like I said earlier in the interview, I was going to work for the army. I didn't know if I was going to have to cut my hair short, high and tight and shave every day. So the day after my, or right after my initial interview, I said, I'm not going to shave until I have to start this job. They had offered me the job the very next day, or they told me I was going to get a tentative offer. And I said, I might have to start shaving every day, which is something I'd never done in my life. So I'm just going to not shave until I start my job. Seven and a half months later was my first day. And the beard I had going by the time I actually got to start was, was pretty remarkable. And it was just this physical manifestation of all the red tape and all the time I spent waiting and waiting and waiting <laughs> to finally start my job. And it turned out after all that, civilians don't have to shave every day. You don't have to wear your hair high and tight. <laughs> all right, Lindsay, well, I'm going to let you go here in a minute. Just any, is there anything else you'd like to share? Any final bits of wisdom for either your, your fellow early career employees or the, the supervisors and leaders who, who employ you? No final parting words, but I'm, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to talk to you today and be on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate you being so honest and candid with your insights. And hopefully folks at all levels of their career can learn from our conversation today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Lindsay Floyd, thanks so much for being with us today on Inside the Castle. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Inside the Castle. To provide your feedback or to let us know what you want to hear about next, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. This is Aaron Schlein, and I'm signing off. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Revolutionary.